An older goldfish swishes past a couple of small fry. How's the water, boys? he inquires. Water, they ask. What's water? You see, goldfish don't see water. Goldfish goldfish see what's in the water. They see what's refracted through the water. But I assume, yes, assume, because I don't have the time to properly investigate, that goldfish don't see the water itself. And yet, there it is. It's their environment, universal but invisible. It shapes everything they do and everything they see, but they don't see it. Here's the contention of this book. If you're a Westerner, whether you've stepped out a foot inside a church or not, whether you've clapped eyes on the Bible or not, whether you consider yourself an atheist, a pagan, a Jedi knight, you are a goldfish. And Christianity is the water in which you swim. Or to say it the same, say the same thing in a slightly different way, Christianity is the air we breathe. It is our atmosphere. It's our environment, both unseen and all-pervasive. And in the tradition of a spiritual teacher, I'm going to ask you to focus on your breathing. This is a technique common to so many of the great religious traditions. The spiritual teacher does not invite you to start breathing. You've got that life skill down pat. 20,000 breaths a day, you're a natural. But there is something centering about noticing your breathing. Are you doing it now? Suddenly, you're slowed down. You're aware of your dependence. You're inhabiting your body as a creature with needs and rhythms and physicality. You're you're mindful of your connection to the world around you and your place within it. This book is like that practice. But instead of oxygen, it's talking about beliefs and intuitions. What I want you to do is to notice your dependence on the environment around you and your place within the world of ideas. Here's a chance to slow down and pay attention to the profoundly Christian atmosphere you inhabit. Christian, you say? I'm not so sure my world is particularly Christian. This book is in large part about making that case. You can be the judge of how successful it is, but here's my contention. We depend on values and goals and ways of thinking about values and goals that have been deeply and distinctively shaped by the Jesus Revolution, otherwise known as Christianity. These values are now so all-pervasive that we consider them to be universal, obvious, and natural the air we breathe. This was the introduction to my favorite book of the last 12 months called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Shrivener. He's an Australian philosopher, Anglican priest, and I bought nine additional copies (laughs) for you, my friends. If something I say today strikes you in a particular way, if it spikes your interest, if you feel like you want to investigate the claims I'll make today, he does it in much more detail and thoroughness. The air we breathe. 
But I'm not mainly here to hype a book, but instead, like every Easter, I am here to hype. (laughs) I'm here to hype the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I think it's the most important event, thing, idea that has ever happened in the history of the world. Jesus was a nomadic preacher who lived about 2,000 years ago. He had, no, or he had a public teaching ministry that lasted only three years. Nearly every historian, both secular or religious, agrees that he lived and definitely died on a Roman cross, an execution device reserved for the worst of criminals, not only to kill them, but also to humiliate them, to send a message, to prove a point that men like these should not be emulated or else. But the story of this Jesus doesn't seem to end there. This thoroughly Jewish man from an obscure fishing town way up north, this non-Roman citizen, this unfamous, dirt-poor, political nobody, supposedly rose from the dead just days after his resurrection. I say supposedly only because that's for you to decide. His followers most definitely believed that he had risen from the dead, and they went on to start a new kind of community that bore his name. They retaught his teachings. They also claimed and explained how his death and resurrection were the only thing that could reunite a person both spiritually and physically with their loving creator God. Then they recorded and explained all of these things in new writings and new letters that they sent throughout the Roman Empire to these communities that had spread out across the Mediterranean so that others could know of this Jesus, of his message, of hope and salvation in his name. They wanted people to experience this new kind of power that they had themselves experienced. Now, if you were to compile their written accounts of the resurrection itself, because that's what we're hyping today, those disciples went on to defend these accounts to their death. And if you were to reconstruct them and put them all together, here's what it might sound like. A detailed summary of what happened on that first Easter Sunday. This is a chronology of events that's been composed by one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Craig Blomberg, and he's taken this from Mark chapter 16, if you want to go back and read on your own, Matthew chapter 28, Luke chapter 24, and John chapter 20 and 21. Here's what the disciples claimed happened. Early Sunday morning, a group of women were the first to come and see the tomb located in a garden near dawn, with Mary Magdalene possibly arriving first. Mary and the other women also were met there by two young men who in reality were angels and were apparently dressed in clothes that gleamed like lightning or white as snow and who had apparently rolled back the stone, frightened away the Roman guard that had been stationed there to protect the grave from thieves. One angel acts as the spokesman and announces Jesus' resurrection to the women. The women then leave the garden with a mixture of fear and joy, at first unwilling to say anything, but then resolving to report to the eleven remaining apostles 
Mary Magdalene may have dashed on ahead, telling Peter and John in advance of the arrival of the other women. And Jesus meets the remaining women en route and confirms their commission to tell the disciples with the reminder of his promise of meeting them in the northeastern region of Israel, known as Galilee. The women obey, and they tell the disciples. Peter and John, meanwhile, have run back and returned to the tomb, having heard the report that Mary Magdalene had given, and they discover the tomb is empty. Mary Magdalene then also returns to the tomb after Peter and John have now left. She sees an angel and then Jesus, although at first supposing him to be a gardener. Later that afternoon, Jesus appears to Cleopas and his unnamed companion on the road to Emmaus, and then, in a separate incident, he appears to Peter. That same Sunday evening, Jesus appears to the ten, that's the eleven remaining disciples, apostles, minus Thomas, behind locked doors in a room in Jerusalem. A week later, he then appears to the same eleven at the same venue with Thomas now present, And then further appearances take place over a 40-day period, including in Galilee, as he had promised the women, with over 500 seeing him altogether. Then, at a climactic commissioning in Galilee, Jesus instructs the disciples to spread the news of his death and resurrection throughout all the world. Perhaps only shortly thereafter, Jesus gives his parting instruction to await the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus ascends into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God. Now, I do not want to force upon you these recorded eyewitness statements. I'm not going to force you to accept them. What I want you to do today, or what I want to do is to ask you to consider how these statements, these stories, and these new communities which formed after this supposed resurrection, how did they end up changing the entire trajectory of the world as it pertains to morality and ethics and communal sensibilities? I think, or hopes, perhaps the better word, that upon deeper investigation, you will see that these facts And the comprehensive story about history and the God that they speak of is, in fact, true. True in a way that you never quite realized before. If I do my job well today, you will only be left with one of two possible conclusions. Either, this is simply the most powerful story ever told, but only a story. So powerful is this story that it has resonated and reverberated in such a way that it has formed the moral backbone of the world which we now live in and it guides our intuitions and gives us a dream of what we think culture should be. Or, option two, this is a true story. The story about how God relates to us and how we must relate to God and how all reality will inevitably become a part of this story if it is to exist forever. The good news is that you get to decide. The bad news 
is that you have to decide. I can't decide for you. Your decision does matter. I hope today will clarify that decision. Tom Holland is an award-winning historian. He's an author, a broadcaster. He's known for his comprehensive but readable works on history, including Rubicon, which chronicles the Roman Republic, Persian Fire, which is the history of the Greco-Persian Wars, and Dominion, which retells the history of Christianity. And I recently uh, heard a lecture he gave in which he explains what changed his mind about Christianity. He talks about the realization that he eventually came to through all of his study and as he was beginning his book on the history of Christianity. He also talks about an experience he had during the writing of Dominion, that book, when he was filming a documentary in the Middle East and some horrific things that he saw. But he talks about how his mind changed because he realized just how different the world would necessarily be had it not been for the Jesus Revolution. Had it not been for the subsequent overturning of so much of the Roman world and particularly the Roman moral intuition. He shares quite shockingly that he believes that without Christianity, the world we know today would look much more like Nazi Germany than it does like the liberal, free world that we have come to know and love. He says it this way. He says, It's like at the cross of Christ and his subsequent resurrection that there were, the, that there were these depth charges that were buried deep in the core of the Roman Empire. At first, you could only feel the tremors, if anything at all. But as time went on, they began to shake the whole fabric of Roman society. And I think they're still shaking today. I really resonated with that idea of the depth charge. On the surface, you can't really see what's happening. But the shock waves that were sent out at the cross of Christ and his resurrection still reverberate today. I think I resonated so deeply with that idea in part because it reminded me of this little detail. Is it reminding you of any detail in the, resu- in the cross and resurrection story, in the narratives of the Gospels? It's a little detail that I often skimmed over. I never thought deeply about it until this week. Only one of the four Gospels actually explicitly draws this detail out, and I want to ask why. Seems kind of important to me. I'd, I'd tell this detail if I were telling. So let me first read you. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four biographies of Jesus' life, death, ministry, resurrection, ascension. And I'm going to read from Luke. Luke does not call out this detail that was resonating as I was hearing Tom Holland speak. So I'm going to read it to you. And it comes from the night Jesus was crucified. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 44, says this. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary, that's the temple in Jerusalem, the main place of worship for the Jews, was split down the middle. And Jesus called out from the cross with a loud voice, Father, 
Into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, note this word, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had happened, he began to glorify God, saying, this man really was righteous. All of the crowd that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chest, which is a sign of repentance. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now this is so strange. I thought, I thought about this. This is strange. What happened? He breathed his last. He cried something out from the cross. And then a, a Roman centurion, an atheist, the Jews would have considered him, um, cries out, surely this was the Son of God. What? And then all the people that were, were celebrating his crucifixion were there to see him die, all of a sudden beat their breast in repentance and say we were wrong? Is this striking you? Like, what happened? Okay, they couldn't have known that the temple curtain was torn. They weren't, there was no live stream like there is this morning from the temple. <laughs> oh my gosh, did you guys see that? Tweet that out. No, they, that's not why they were beating their breasts. Now, it could be because it, it literally says the, all light went away. But we're Seattleites. We know often we never see the light. <laughs> okay, it's been a bad storm. Like, I don't think anything there would, would tell an atheist Roman centurion or the people who had just murdered this man that this was, in fact, the Son of God. What could have happened? Okay, so I think... What had happened is this detail that only Matthew describes was so ubiquitous. Everybody knew about it. Uh, remember, the gospel was going out. The stories about Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, it was all or- oral for like two decades. So like when the writers of the gospels finally put pen to paper and said, we're going to die soon, so we better write this down, everyone just assumed this detail would never be forgotten. And Matthew, inspired by the Spirit of God, says, actually, human beings are quite forgetful. So Matthew puts it in for us. Let's read how Matthew describes what happened. So the same part about, about noon, darkness, all that stuff's pretty much the same. And then Matthew 27:50 says this, "But Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. We've heard that, but they couldn't have known no live stream. And then it says this: "The earth quaked. The rocks were split. Of course, that's a detail everyone was telling when they were telling the story orally. So three of the gospel writers said, everyone knows that. That'll never be forgotten. Thankfully, Matthew records an earthquake, the first tremor of these depth charges, that the world would never be the same again, and the rocks split. That's what stuck out to me when Tom Holland said depth charges. So I think that the earthquake was a supernaturally natural phenomenon that convicted the hearts of the centurion that this was no ordinary man. That indeed Jesus was exactly who he had claimed to be, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, and the Son of God. Just as Jesus had said. The earth quaked. 
So why don't the other Gospels writers spell it out? Again, so obvious. Everyone knows that detail. Of course they realized everyone started beating their breasts because the earthquake proved that this was no ordinary man. But now hundreds and then thousands of years after that oral tradition had faded, we of course wish that we had more detail. We wish we could fill in the gaps because why? Our collective memories always fail us. How did we end up here? How did the people end up beating their breast? I can't remember. This is exactly the same problem that we have had over the last two centuries in particular in the Western world. Somewhere along the way, we have forgotten how we ended up doing and saying the things that we do and say. Everyone has assumed that no one forgets about earthquakes. No one could forget that it was Christianity that created this moral earthquake. No one would ever forget that. And so we stopped writing it down. We stopped talking about it. We just assumed everybody knew. We just assumed that it's so obvious that something supernaturally natural must have happened to turn the bloodthirsty Roman Empire into a God-fearing, gospel-spreading, carpenter-worshipping, love-centered world. How could we forget such a seismic detail? It's unforgettable, right? Wrong. Tom Holland highlights several of these depth charges that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus buried deep within the ground 2,000 years ago and then only later shook the foundations of the Roman way of thinking and pretty much shook them out of existence. I want to highlight a couple of those thoughts for you as, as I saw, see them after considering it for a bit. The first goes like this. <clears throat> I read this scripture on Good Friday, and I'll read it again. It's Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still... What's the word? Weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, but God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We take this idea presented here for granted as if this is natural and that people before Christianity thought this way. Jesus taught us not only to love our friends, 
not only to love our family, not only to love our own country, not only to love our own political tribe, but to love our enemies. That even those who oppose our well-being have intrinsic value and deserve life and happiness just like we do. This is not a leftover from ancient civilization. This was certainly not a Roman way of thinking. Julius Caesar once killed a million Gauls. That's the French. Don't celebrate. The Gauls in one battle and then brought a million more back into slavery. He was celebrated. He was heralded. He was honored. This was the way of thinking in Rome. This was the way of talking. This is what love meant, to love Rome. To love Roman citizens above those who are not citizens. Certainly above those who were slaves and servants. And even though, and, and I want, when, I, when I'm talking about Christianity, I'm talking about the ideal. We know that we have fallen woefully short of this ideal. We know that we have imperfectly lived this verse out for the last 2,000 years. That so-called Christians have done the opposite of love their enemies. That have fallen into the Roman way of living even though they call themselves Christians. So we know that. But the way of Christ, this was a depth charge that utterly transformed the moral intuitions of now the entire world as Christianity has spread out to the ends of the earth. Second death charge. I want to read John 19, 25 to 27. This is again at the foot of the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross, nearing his last breath, says this. Standing at the cross, Jesus, the cross of Jesus, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, the author of the Gospel of John. That's his way of referring to himself. He didn't like to use his own name. When Jesus saw his mother and John standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, Ryan talked about this a couple weeks ago. That's like saying, Ma'am, Ma'am, behold your son. And he points to John. Then he said to the disciple, that's John, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her, that's Mary, to his own home and treated her like his own mother. Okay. What does that, what, what depth charge is this? This is not the first time that Jesus has spoken of family in a completely new way. Routinely, he challenged the way we think about who is my family. And this is a pretty nice one for his mother Mary, but there's other times where he's like, who's my mother? And he looks at his disciples and says, this is my mother and my brother. So he's consistent. <laughs> Mary doesn't get a special spot. He, has, he changed the way we think about who is family. In the Roman Empire, where killing your child or leaving your child in the garbage was common, not frowned upon, understood, where enslavement of children and women was not only tolerated but celebrated as the way of life, the way it must be, Jesus comes in and completely changes the conversation. You see, sometimes people hear a Christian preacher like me 
talk about the good qualities of Christian living and love, and they'll rightly deduce that these same things are very much present in their own family. Or, for lack of a better term, their own tribal system, whatever that may be. And I totally agree. I see this same love and cherishing and protecting and giving of your life very much all over the world. But in the tribal system or family unit that is yours, that bears your name. Across the globe, that's true. So I don't want to say only Christians live and love this way. But what the depth charge was, what Jesus actually changed after and through his death and resurrection, which was buried in the soil of the Roman world and would eventually shake itself out into everything that we know today, is that family goes beyond biology. Family goes beyond tribalism. Family is, goes beyond the evolutionary predisposition to perpetuate your own genetic code. We are beyond biology. And we're that way here in America, and I love that, and I celebrate that. But we must recognize why we're there. To see other people from other ethnicities, from other genetic coding, as just as valuable and equal to yourself... This is not natural, not in the history of the world, not in any other species. Even though it seems natural to you right now, even though you're wrestling with my statement that it's not natural, like, yes, it is, it's so natural. This is the point. It's the air you breathe because you were born into a world where most of the air was still Christian least for now. And it all points back to Jesus. Not to the Romans, not to the Greeks, not to the Persians. It all points back to Jesus and no other culture. Not even the Jewish people from whom Jesus descended. Jesus is very much Jewish. Even the Jewish people struggled to love. And maybe especially the Jewish people struggled to love those who were genetically different than them. Think of the Samaritans. We'll talk about the woman at the well in just a couple weeks. Jesus transformed that and said, nope, you're my family, you're my family, you're my family. The whole world can be a part of my family. I've come to save them all. We take it for granted because it's the air we breathe. And it's only this kind of love, this love that is present at the cross that is the action of the cross and that is confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus. Only there can we account for this kind of new definition of family. Only through that event can we account for the globalism which we now live in. Amen. I love that we can be family with people from all over the world and it's because of Jesus. Even within a Roman family, there was much love, respect, care, and honor, but it never expressed itself beyond. Beyond their genetics, beyond their family name, beyond the citizenship of Rome. 
The gladiator games are a stark reality that points to this picture. What changed? Depth charge number two activated. Third depth charge. How is it that a world which, not unlike the Nazi world, was completely intolerant of weakness, of smallness, of difference, that preyed upon those with no power to increase the power of the powerful? How is it that into that world we see born the world of today? Through that world comes the world of today where weakness is not only tolerated, but rightly so, it's celebrated. Where Brene Brown can write multiple New York Times best-selling books that all say the same thing. I love Brene Brown, by the way. I'm, not, I'm just saying, she's taken advantage of this air. Brene Brown says, be vulnerable and you will thrive. How in the world did this world come out of the Roman world? Like, if you study the Roman world, and you can take one of these books if you want to study it more, that being vulnerable leads to thriving, how is that the world we live in? We live in a world where we're moving further and further away from the death penalty for murderers. I think this is good. We're moving further into a world of mercy and compassion and kindness and honesty and second chances. We celebrate that in every corner of our society. Why is that? How did that world come out of the world of Rome? The world of the cross. What? Let me tell you. Let me read you something that Jesus said, standing on a mount somewhere, sometime. He said this. This is in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy, be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. If you think that the Romans just changed their mind, or maybe it was the Visigoths who conquered Rome, or maybe it was those Vikings. I know something about those guys. Or maybe it was Attila the Hun who brought this kinder, gentler vocabulary into the intuitions of the world. You obviously need to watch more Netflix documentaries like me. Like, you just need to just do it. Just stop with the series shows and just watch documentaries. It was the only, the only thing that could possibly account for this is Jesus. These words. These words. These teachings. This Sermon on the Mount. But more importantly, him actually living them out and surrendering his life for his friends. Not just his biological siblings, but for all humanity. To give his life as a ransom for ours. To love not only those who already followed him, but his enemies who were murdering him. God, he said, they know not what they do. Forgive them. He lived it out 
and he died for them, and his blood atoned for their sin, and he was the death that sacrificed for their death. That's the cross. That is the third depth charge. And it created this culture of the cross. Like we take for granted that the the cross is just this most recognizable symbol in all the world. And when we look at the cross, we don't see a Roman torture chamber. We see love. How is that possible? That when we see the most grotesque, humiliating form of, of torture, we see love and compassion and kindness. And th- this is Christian and non-Christian. We see the cross we say, that's the kind of culture that we want. A culture of the cross. That's the kind of culture we have. A culture of the cross. Here in Seattle, we have a culture of the cross. Even though we'd say it's not a culture of Christianity. How do you have the culture of the cross without the culture of Christianity? The answer is you, you, you don't. It's just the air we breathe, but we forgot about the earthquake. We forgot how we got here. This kind of weakness that is personified in the cross, the idea that God would hang on a cross and die is so foreign to people of all time and people today, they see the cross and they say, wait, your God died on a cross? That couldn't be God. God would never stoop so low. God could never be so weak. Still today, people will say that. Many people around the world look at the cross and think, how in the world could this be true? Yet we live like it is. We like the smell of the cross, of sacrifice, but many do not. Many want to take that and they see it as stench. They want to remove it from society and they want to replace it with the air that is power and strength, the ubermensche, the superman, the dominance, the control. That's the air, they say, that we need in our world. So in this book, The Air We Breathe, by Glenn Shrivener, It's basically seven chapters of saying these seven things, these values that we so love in the West, that everyone in Seattle loves, and he says, I want to show you how those things were nowhere to be found before the cross of Christ. So he spends each chapter on one of these cultural beliefs, one of these attributes of the smell of the air that we now breathe and love, and he'll contend that they would not exist without the Jesus revolution. He includes equality, that we believe in the equal moral status of every member of the human family, no matter their rank, race, religion, gender, or sexuality. He talks about compassion, that we believe in a society, that in society we should be judged by the way we treat our weakest members. He talks about consent, that we believe um, that the powerful have no right to force themselves on others, uh, specifically in, in the sexual sense, And so he'll talk about how something like the Me Too Too movement would never happen were it not for the cross of Christ, were it not for the Jesus revolution. And so we can be thankful to Jesus for the idea and the proliferation of consent in our culture. He talks about enlightenment, that we believe in education for all and the power of education to transform a society. He talks about science and how we believe in science, its ability to help us understand the world and improve our lives. He talks about freedom, and we believe that persons are not property and that each of us should be in control of our own lives. He talks about progress. We believe in a moral improvement over time and that we should continue to reform society 
of its former evils. He says, all of this is the air we breathe in in Western civilization, and we like it, and we should like it. We were created to like it, and we should want to give it up for the air of ancient Rome. I'm sorry, we should not want to give it up for the air of ancient Rome. Woo! Test. That was a test. We should not. Some of you are like, yeah, no, get out. This is not a place for you. You will not be comfortable here. We will force you to be friends with people you don't like. Okay. So you, you, you don't want that. You don't want the air of ancient Rome. And we have the Jesus Revolution to thank. So, now, let me just, a slight cap, I just want to make sure this is so clear, because I know not all of us in here are from the West. So, I want to make sure, and, and Glenn Trivener is very clear on this in his introduction, um, and I want to be clear too, that we are not saying West is best. We're not saying that. In fact, um, we're not even close to claiming that. West is not best. It's just lucky. It's lucky that it's had Christianity longer than other parts of the world. Jesus is best. And any society or tribe or family, for that matter, that shapes itself around the revolutionary acts and messages and teaching of Jesus Christ, especially His cross and His resurrection, are going to find themselves in a situation that they're glad to be, where, as it were, that air is nice to breathe. So it's not that West is best, it's that Jesus is best. So let me answer the question, the elephant in the room. Why can't we just have the air without all the Jesus? That's a valid question. That's a good question. That's a question that many of us ask. That's a a question that many in Seattle are asking. Where do I begin? I need some water. Okay. I want to begin by going back to the cross. Read it with me again, what happened right before the earthquake. Luke 23, 46 said what? We read it earlier. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. He breathed his last. That culture of the cross that we just talked about, would mean nothing if the cross was the end of the Jesus story, right? It would only prove that the polluted air of Rome wins in the end. Jesus always loses if the resurrection is not true. The culture of the cross always loses to the culture of power and arrogance and greed if the resurrection isn't true. The polluted air and, and it still commingles, just so you know, in this new air that we breathe. That greed, that power, that lust, that need for, for my pride to express itself because I'm insecure, that false religion of self-righteousness, that hatred of weakness, that, that hatred of meekness, that cruelty, the mockery of the lower class, all uh, that killed Jesus. That's the air that killed Jesus. It would win if it didn't Or if it ended there. But I don't think it did. I mean, think of this. Literally, the torture device that killed Jesus, this torture device dreamed up by the Romans, it killed people not by bleeding them to death, not not by fainting from pain, but by suffocation. 
That's literally how Jesus died on the cross. That's how everyone died on the cross. In order to survive, you had nails in your hands and your feet, and you'd have to push yourself up on the cross just to get a breath. And so, read it again with me. He breathed his last. means he had no strength to lift himself up. The polluted air of Rome literally suffocated him to death. The air of Rome looked like it had won. Jesus' life looked to be snuffed out. The culture of love and mercy and grace and kindness and compassion and equality and freedom and consent and honesty looked to be dead forever. But then, but then, on the third day, after Jesus' body had lain cold and breathless in the tomb on the side of a hill, what happened? God breathed new air again. By the same breath that was present at creation, go read Genesis chapter 1, that hovered over the formless void, over the darkness, and breathed life into creation, and the heavens and the earth were created and ordered and made perfect and good by that same breath, by the same breath that breathed into the nostril of the firstborn of humankind, the Adam, that brought life and consciousness and morality into the world, by the same breath that gave words to the Israelites for new hope through the inspiration of the prophets, by the same breath that entered Mary's womb and gave conception to the God-man Jesus Christ, and now, by the same breath, God gave life. Life again. New air into the world. A new kind of air that had power even over death, power over sin, and power over Satan. That's what happened at the resurrection. God breathed. Without the resurrection, the cross is just a nice idea. It really doesn't work in the long run. But with the resurrection, if Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead, if God did in fact breathe new resurrection life into his lungs, then on that day, three days after, three days after the old, ancient, polluted air seemed to have won once again, a new kind of resurrection air entered the world, and it hasn't left since. The resurrection is real, and it changes so many things. It's the proof that Jesus' sacrifice worked just as he claimed it would to remove our sin and make us able to reunite with our Creator God. It's the promise of a future bodily resurrection just like Jesus for all of us who put our trust in Jesus for resurrection like Jesus to a new life that can live forever in the flesh with Jesus our God. It's also a proclamation, a proclamation of God's victory over death itself and a confirmation that life will reign evermore. And you see where I'm going with the P's here? If you're right, taking notes. Proof, promise, proclamation. And then I'm thinking, how can I talk about air with a P? Doctors all say, pulmonary. <laughs> You've got to remember it now. You better, doctors. This is a pulmonary 
Evolution. Pulmonary revolution. Okay? This is new lungs and new air to fill the new lungs. That's what happened at the resurrection. That's what can happen to you when you are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a pulmonary revolution. And it revolutionized the world. You would not be sitting here like you're sitting here if it weren't for this pulmonary revolution. When God breathed into the life of Jesus again and brought him to life, it changed everything. We now live in the resurrection world with Jesus' heir and and Jesus' kingdom, and he invites us into it, into an eternal life with him. That all happened at the resurrection. Now, now, very quickly, very quickly, I'm almost done. Stick with me. This is maybe my favorite part. If you have accepted this air, if I've convinced you in some way you've accepted the Jesus air of love and compassion and quality and freedom and all this good stuff, if you've accepted it but you failed to recognize that it came from Jesus, I want to tell you, don't waste your time being embarrassed. There's no time for that. Don't waste your time being embarrassed. You are in such good company and God wants to give you a really big hug. He wants to tell you that it's okay that you never saw him in all of the air that comes from him. It's okay. He says, I want to start a new relationship with you today. Don't wait. Stop being embarrassed. Stop fighting it. Just accept it that everything you love comes from him. It's okay, he says. This is why I know. This is why I know. Jesus gave us a detail in the story that he never wanted us to forget so that we wouldn't waste our time being embarrassed. What's the detail? Look with me at John chapter 20, verses 11 to 18. Now remember the backstory, because I read it earlier. The women had seen the empty tomb, they'd seen the angels, they told them to go back, then, then Mary Magdalene's probably faster than all the other girls, so she runs, she tells Peter and John, and they get to the tomb, then Mary Magdalene runs back, because she's like, I gotta, I gotta get, see some more of this, I gotta figure out what's going on, and she comes back, okay? And she's the only one there now. Peter and John... They didn't even think to stick around because maybe they'd see Jesus. <laughs> they go back, classic, classic guy move. Okay, but Mary, she's smart. She gets it. But look at this. It says this, John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying because Jesus' body was gone. She didn't know what had happened. She thought it had been stolen. She's crying. She stopped and stooped in to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels, those same angels, sitting, in, sitting there where Jesus' body had been lying. One at the head of the table and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, ma'am, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where, that they've, where they've put his body. Because they've taken away my Lord and they don't know where, where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around. Picture it with me. She turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't recognize him. She didn't know it was Jesus. Circumstantial evidence, Mary. (laughs) Okay. She didn't have a category for this. So she's looking right at him. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus said. Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, Can you please tell me where you've put him, and I'll take him? She missed it. Then Jesus said to her, Mary. Jesus knows your name. 
Is he speaking to you right now? What did Mary do? She turns around and she says to him in Aramaic, Robonai, which means teacher. Then it says, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what she had seen. Now that's such an interesting, don't cling to me, Jesus says. There's a detail that's left out and we can assume. She runs to him, throws her arms around him, and what does this tell us? The gardener? She thought it was the gardener. At least you guys think it's the philosophers that came up with this morality. She thought it was the gardener. I just pictured Jesus raking leaves. I know that that's probably not a thing back then, but that's how I picture it. He's just raking the leaves. It's like, you know, he's making a pile, then he's making a new pile. That's the way I rake my leaves. It's just like, just waiting for her to get it. I love Mary's response. She's totally missed it. She's seen Jesus, but she hasn't seen him, right? This is not actually uncommon in the, in the resurrection narratives. Lots of people miss it at first. I love that God has recorded that for us because he doesn't want us to be embarrassed if we've missed it, that it, in fact it's Jesus. Now most of us here today, you know, we don't have to start breathing. We're already breathing in the air of this good air. We like it, compassion, equality. We're lovers of freedom, we're lovers of consent, all of this stuff. But we do need to start focusing on our breathing. Mary in the garden, looking right at Jesus, for whatever reason, her anxiety, her elevated heart rate, her, her need to be task-oriented in the moment, her disbelief in the way things have gone, the trauma of seeing her master and Lord, her teacher, dying on a cross, whatever, whatever it is, she, she misses Jesus at first. Her eyes can't focus. They're looking right at him, but, but they can't focus and see who it really is. He's been there all along for her. And he's been there all along for us. He's been in every law, every story, every movie, every act of compassion and kindness. But for some reason, so many of us are looking right at him, but we can't see him. Now, now, this detail in the story, I love Mary for so many reasons, especially this. As soon as she realizes that she's missed it, she doesn't hesitate. What does she do? She turns, which is the word we often associate with repentance in a spiritual sense. We turn from our old way of thinking, our old way of, of believing or worshiping the wrong thing. She turns when she hears her voice, just like we turn from our sin. We repent. The Bible says. And what does she do? She confesses with her lips that it is her Lord. It truly is Jesus. She confesses with her lips. It's always been you, Jesus. And then she runs straight to him. Straight at him. No hesitation. No gathering herself. No wiping away her tears. No thinking about what she'll say next so she doesn't mess it up when she gets there. She's just straight to him. Beeline. Right at him, and then she wraps her arms, clinging so tight to her Lord and Savior. I love that. There is no time to waste on embarrassment. 
there is no embarrassment. If you've been loving all the things that Jesus brought to the world but haven't been seeing him, and he's opened your eyes today, turn, say, I'm sorry I missed you, Jesus. Confess, you are Lord and Savior. I want you to run my life. Run straight to him. Take no detours. Immediately go to him. Get whatever you need out of your life so that you can get to him and then throw your arm around him, arms around him. Cling tight to him. He is not a God who is far off, but he is near to the brokenhearted, to the contrite, to the repentant. And if you want to be that today, you can run and throw your arms around Jesus. There is no time for embarrassment. She sees Jesus, and she knows that nothing will ever be the same again. Goldfish might not be aware of the chemical composition of H2O, but it's still central to their lives in the same way that I'm guessing that the concerns that I've mentioned today, love without borders, care for the weak, equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress, are all things that you still value and desperately want in your world that you inhabit. I I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and I remember the air, or maybe I didn't, until I left. And I spent four years in Dallas where that, that humidity suffocated me. I took like five showers a day. It was gross. <laughs> but I love Dallas. And then I moved the polar opposite to Denver, Colorado for three years. And I was suffocated by the dry, high desert air. The altitude. I couldn't get a good breath. And then I finally came to my senses and I moved back to Seattle. <laughs> where the air is so perfect and beautiful, Right? It's just full of the right amount of moisture. It's right at sea level, full of oxygen. I mean, I remember coming back and I'm like, this is the air I want to breathe forever. Maybe that's like you. Maybe you come to realize that the air that Jesus Christ bought on the cross and brought into the world through his resurrection is the air you want to breathe forever. Maybe it takes walking away from it to realize how good you had it. I hope as a society we don't have to walk all the way away and go all the way back to the air of Rome before we realize how good we had it with the Jesus air. However it happens in your own personal life or in our society, I hope you remember this sermon. And whenever you see that it was Jesus, you turn, you run as fast as you can, and you confess, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life, Lord of my family, Lord of my tribal system, Lord of my society and culture. You are the Lord of this world. Bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, the pure mountain air of the forever home for all of us who trust in Jesus. Let's pray.